spiritually, I love everyone. Everyone is my lover. Frederick Weston is somebody who would give a double hug. When I do that hug with other people, when I do that double hug, that is me sharing an archive. That is me dragging forward one of the beautiful things about Frederick Weston. Fred is one of those folks that just has that spirit, you know, that light about him where anytime I would see Fred, I just felt like I was lighting up, you know? It was like he was a spotlight, you know? And so talented and just so beautiful, so warm and such like a pillar and a beacon of the HIV community. In, in a strange kind of way, my dreams, my dream, my dreams are always coming true, and I and I will usually wind up landing in very good places. And I really feel like I was blessed to have like all of it. I mean, GMAC at the right time, AIDS Services Center at the right time, Village Care at the right time, Visual Aids at the right time. It may not be time for my design and my fashion and my art, but I'm 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 in the right place at the right time. Hello, I'm Michelle Herman, Head of Digital Experience at the Archives of American Art. And I'm Ben Gillespie, the Arlene and Robert Kogod Secretarial Scholar for Oral History. Welcome to the second season of Articulated. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Oral histories provide unique glimpses into human experience as narrators convey their own stories and their own words. And these glimpses often give us insight into the charms guiles, and relationships that enrich life. Frederick Weston cultivated a profound legacy of love and warmth, both through the works of his hands and the communities he enlivened. In this episode, we will spend our time with Fred the artist, the friend, and the legendary hugger. Weston was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1946, then raised in Detroit, where his mother instilled in him a love for aesthetics and clothing. He would go on to graduate from the Fashion Institute of Technology, but found the fashion industry resistant to hiring a black man. In the decades to come, he would build a practice of his own through collage, bricolage, plaster, and above all, personal relationships. Weston's entry into the art world was enabled by the community he found at Visual Aids, an organization based in New York City that fights AIDS through education, programming, and by directly supporting artists living with HIV. Here's how he described the importance of that shift in his 2016 oral history interview with Ted Kerr. I didn't know I was making art until I went to Visual Aids to get my friend Franz Bernard, the photographer, his work in, they're like, well, who are you? And when do you think and that I'm works? like, I'm yeah. doing stuff, I put stuff out on the street, and they say, we want to see it. And they say, you're an artist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? Okay. And so then it's like, oh, cool. And it was right at the time when it was one of the first books, one of the first, like, books of, you know, who, what is Visual Aids and who are its members, and opened up the book, and Keith Herring was in there. And, uh. And all these people were in there, and I'm like, oh, shit, 
I'm an artist. <laughs> Wait, what year do you think that was? Oh, okay. I got the virus in 96, 95, 96. Uh-huh. So, so this would be like late, this would be like later on Stella, uh -huh. 97. Uh -huh. Wait, so you... I was doing coke check then. I was doing coke check then. And then... So you hadn't really thought of yourself as an artist until after... I was doing, you know what I was doing? I was doing whatever I needed to do for, like, for Claude, making stuff and doing stuff and invitations. And I'm like, oh, but this, there's a point to this. And I was even putting stuff out on the street, uh -huh. you know, um, and that was kind of expression. And then it was, okay, here's a story. I was working for a store. A really, really little tiny store down near Houston and Broadway in that area. And I was supposed to be the art director. They were giving me a title because they didn't give me any money. And they said, you know, I'm like, well, here's an idea. Let's decorate the store. They didn't knitwear. I'm like, well, let's do a blue story. And we'll take all the blue knitwear and we'll put those on the front, out in front, and then put all the other colors and things in the back in the stock. So we create kind of like this big, serious blue vibration. And I said, I'll collect stuff out of the bathroom and the bedroom, just containers, empty containers and stuff. And we'll line them all around the store so it's like a, a cityscape. When you look at it, you just see all these shapes, but then when you realize that there's stuff, it's stuff. But it's all blood out clad. I said, I only get blue because we want to we make this blue vibration. And they said, oh, cool, 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 because I don't have to spend any money. I'm gonna so I got, I had big bags, big garbage bags full of stuff that I had collected over time. And they're like, oh, we don't think we want to do that. I'm like, shit. I'm sorry, I'm cursing Smithsonian. <laughs> I so it's like, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, well, okay, make art out of it. Blue Bathroom Blues was a breakthrough work for Weston, a moving and mobile installation he mounted in the streets of New York. Integrating collage, assemblage, performance, and poetry, Weston repurposed medical materials, commercial wrappers, and the detritus of everyday life and HIV treatment. In his oral history, he describes how the work grew into the communities where he presented it. So the, the Blue Bathroom Blues out on the street happened as a result of me having collected all of this stuff and not having the, the original place where I'd intended it to go was no longer available to me. So now I just have to put it out on the street. And I put it out on the street with the same way, with the same kind of intention as I would in the store, and we'll see what happens. So it's all really trash. So I'll make a, in fact, I would go for uh, construction sites that had painted the back blue postmobiles and painted all blue and I would write blue bathroom blues on in chalk and I would just line the stuff up on the street in front of the blue wall in front of the blue wall and I take a picture with the pole where click so I got to you know like I proved that it was here and we'll see how long it stays up before they sweep it up because it's really only trash anyway okay so this was I don't know what year it was but it was in June just before gay pride and so I was working uh, uptown, and so I would come, when I would come home, I'd come back past this little, it was a, a hotel, uh, maybe 
27th Street on the east side, and one of those big condos or something was going, a hotel or a condo or something was going up. So I put it there, and I'm like, well, let's see how long this stays. So there was one container that every time I'd walk past, it seemed like the wind would have caught it and it would fall down. So I'd prop it back up. So after I've walked past a couple of days, I'm like, we know what this one has stayed up. Like, this is several days now. In fact, Gay Pride is this weekend. I wonder if it's going to make it up to Gay Pride. And um, they said, but I'm really tired of propping this piece up. I'm not, you know, if it falls down, I'm going to let it just let it fall. And then when I went back later on, I realized somebody else had propped it up. I'm like, oh, other people know that this is a thing. Other people are recognizing that this is a thing. And they're even supporting it by, you know, keeping it clean and neat and propped up. But that was like, okay, I'm making art and other people are seeing this. And I don't even have, I don't have to be the one to prop it up every time. Throughout his work, Weston examined discarded markers of permanent conditions, confronting the realities of disease management, poverty, consumerism, and racism, and their material and psychological residue. He was also an active member of a support group that dealt with the damage of accumulating too much stuff. Here's how he detailed its importance to interviewer Ted Kerr. Can you say more about Clutter's Anonymous? Clutter's Anonymous, Clutter's Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience with cluttering and hoarding and try to not make it be a detriment to their lives and to come out of that situation and to recognize it is a disease, you know, and that it's physical and emotional and spiritual as well. And we use the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because we feel it works as well for those who have problems with clutter as it does for alcoholics. Yeah, they're an amazing group of incredible people who you not expect but most of us share the shame of having too much stuff and other people's opinions about us that we have too much stuff we may not be the best homemakers and housekeepers as we might be uh, and again it's about stuff I think Americans I think Americans just have so much stuff you know, and they tell us we're not, you know, what will make us better? What will make us, <laughs> what will make us nicer people is stuff, more stuff. Anyway, I think now, in fact, my my latest ism is minimalism. Mm. Um, because I think rich people are moving into this place where they realize that stuff doesn't make you happy. And now they, they would like to have less stuff. They would like to have better stuff, but they would like to have less stuff. Huh. And, but I think you have to have had the experience of having too much stuff or having, and realize that having enough stuff that should make you happy to get to the point where you realize that it doesn't make you happy and to divest yourself from stuff and try to figure out what makes you happy is something, something else. Beyond the, beyond the material. Um, but for people who never had stuff, I understand why they want 
stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, we get identities from stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you see a connection between the Clutter's Anonymous work that you do and your artwork? Mm, yes. In fact, I try to some of some of my artwork directly addresses the stuff, the issue of stuff, and then the idea of like um, a collage necessarily is trying to squeeze, you know, a lot of images in a limited amount of space, or try to squeeze as many ideas in a small amount of space, or, or taking things from desperate situations and putting them together in, the, in a context that wasn't necessarily that people might not necessarily have thought of before. Or even like to a point where I find poses, um, poses in classic art and poses in fashion art and poses in illustration and it's the same pose. So I think all of that, I think a lot of things have meaning, like I think gestures and things have meaning. The la language is the way we use our bodies not only the way we clothe our bodies, but the way we use our bodies. And that's, I think, that's my, my and that's my mission in ministry, to have a space where I'm able to talk about these things. Mm. Weston's work draws on the significance and life cycle of stuff, its appearance and circulation, to spur new connections. His attention to refuse, the boxes, wrappers, and remnants of mean survival, yielded insight into the lifelong legacies of the things that make up our day-to-day -day lives. In his own life, Weston also cultivated deep connections through an appreciation of warm, fleeting embraces and friendship. Like physical relationships, spiritual relationships. Spiritually, are I love everyone. Everyone is my lover. You know, um, emotionally, I think I can get caught up, but I've learned I need to keep my safe, I need to create safe spaces for myself because they are emotional vampires. Now they do is suck all your energy. Um, physically, I, I'm a hugger. You know me, I hug. I got the fierce hug. I got the fierce hug. In fact, people hug me and they're like, oh, Fred, oh, when I hug you. And then somebody even was talking, oh, it was embarrassing. They were talking about me hugging. It was a guy talking about me hugging people. And when Fred hugged me, it was embarrassing. Embarrassing, but he was talking. I know I have the power. I know that's part of my power. There's power in my touch, you know. And when I embrace someone, it's real. It's a spiritual. It's just, in fact, there was a lady on TV. She said, "Hugs, H U G S, helps us grow spiritually." That's what hugs are for me, and I make a ritual of it. It's it's something special, and it's it's more intimate and it's cleaner than a handshake <laughs> or a kiss, <laughs> you know. It's safer, <laughs> and if if and if you're doing it right, it's the most wonderful experience. It's the most wonderful expression of love that the, that the world has. So, yeah, I'm a hugger, and that's kind of I feel like that's one of my. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm branding myself. I make a lot of decisions based on the fact that I know that I do this and nobody else does this. This is my thing. Uh, you know, my handwriting, my printing is my thing. Um, um, my expression is my thing. I believe I am a happening. And to know me is to love me, you know. To not know me can be kind of confusing because there's really everything that's going on in your head. But to try and get some, make, you know, 
You know, Fred, I had uh, Fred. Ted, I had to. <laughs> That's for some transfers. We spoke with Ted Kerr, the interviewer from Weston's Oral History and an advocate for those living with HIV-AIDS, who told us about the substance of a hug. Frederick Weston is somebody who would give a double hug, meaning he would, you know, put his, let's say, his left arm on top of your shoulder and then wrap around and hug and then release and then put the right arm over your body, hug and then release. And when I when I do that hug with other people, when I do that double hug, that is that is me sharing an archive. That is me um, dragging forward one of the beautiful things about Frederick Weston. And so I just, I maybe challenge myself and challenge all of us to think of what are the ways in our everyday practices that we're dragging forward the bits of of our lives in archive that will make the world better for other people. For some people, that'll be a handshake or maybe um, a turn of phrase that their grandmother would say. And for me, it's Frederick Weston's double hug. Weston came to appreciate the powers of kindness and charisma through his mother, Frida, whose wide-ranging influence and artistic impulse nurtured his creative spirit. My mother was a star. My mother was amazing in so many ways. And I know she had a lot of effect. She only had one, I could say I'm my mother's only issue. And I mean that literally and figuratively. I mean that in all the senses of the words. But my mother touched a lot of people. My mother was, my mother learned from my grandmother too, again, how to put your hands on something and have it be better for her putting her hands on it. My mother had, she was, she was a creative, a creative force. Um, even if it's just moving the furniture around in the room, you know, she, she was quite something. So I miss her. I miss that part of her. We spoke with artist and performer Kia LaBeja about lessons she learned from Weston for coping with and growing from loss. Fred, I think, maybe was one of the first folks that I met at Visual Aids. I'm trying to remember. I can't even remember the first time we met, but um, Fred is one of those folks that just has that spirit, you know, that light about him where anytime I would see Fred, I just felt like I was lighting up, you know? It was like he was a spotlight, you know? And so talented and just so beautiful so warm and such like a pillar and a beacon of the HIV community especially at visual aids you know he was someone that you would see always see at a visual aids event was always involved you know um just like really like just magnificent and an angel I remember at the visual aids vanguard awards maybe 20 15 or 2016 um when luna was being honored uh luna ortiz 
this amazing, amazing photographer and also just amazing person and also like a beacon of the ballroom community and just the visual aid community and many other communities. But I remember we were talking about something at this table and uh, he closed his hand like in a fist and he said to me, you know, when people say to let go, if, the, if you're holding your hand as a fist and you just open your hand, right? That's not really letting go. So he, he closes his hand as a fist and he opens it, right? And his palm is out, his whole hand is spread. And then he turns his hand upside down and he goes, that's how you let go of things. And I don't know, it just really struck me. And I do it all the time, you know, when I'm having a moment, like I'll, I'll ball up my fist and I'll open it, you know, palms out, you know, facing the sky. And then you turn your hands down and that's letting go. And it's just things like that, that were just like really special about him. Weston had a knack for finding or founding community wherever he went, from visual aids and the GMHC, formerly known as Gay Men's Health Crisis, to Clutterer's Anonymous and his participatory street installations. In his varied networks, he maintained care for individuals and their uniqueness, respecting the multitude of facets that come together in each community member. To learn more about artist activist groups and their responses to the AIDS epidemic, Check out Season 1, Episode 5, The AIDS Crisis in Queer Activist Art. Interviewer Ted Kerr asked Weston about how he structured his life and care during his 2016 oral history. When I worked at Visual Aids, you told me this thing that I thought that I think a lot about, and you talked about how your day program is your work, or you think of it as a job. It's my job. It is my job. It is my job. But if I, I have to, in order to get the food, I got to show up, you know. And it, but it's but then there's like they and because they're the kind of program they are in order for them to serve me the food, they have to give me a couple of classes and so we're doing we're talking about and the and the people there really I like I learned Maslow I learned from Maslow from day treatment program I learned about Erickson the day treatment program I, I mean like I'm we, I'm doing like a serious psychology classes yeah you're doing a master's day, right you know. <laughs> And that's part of our that's part of our conversation. Everybody needs the therapist. Uh-huh. Everybody needs to go talk to somebody uh-huh. that they don't know. They're not married, they're not connected to in any kind of way, and they can talk about anything. Uh-huh. They need a person. I mean, it's interesting. The same way that HIV opened up an awareness to this art world, HIV also opened up a different way of of finding stability or health for you. Well, yeah, and in fact, I. In, in a strange kind of way, my dreams, my dream, my dreams are always coming true, and I and I will usually wind up landing in very good places, and I really feel like I was blessed to have like all of it. I mean, GMAC at the right time, A Services Center at the right time, Village Care at the right time, Visual Aids at the right time, Stella's Bar at the right time, Tricks Bar at the right time. All those clubs at the right time, you know. It may not be time for my design and my fashion and my art, but I'm 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 in the right place at the right time. 
And even the places that I think, like, damn, why am I here? This is like, this is so beneath me. You know, like, I have all these degrees and things, and I know all this stuff, and, and I'm here with people who are acting crazy and just walking around the corner and smoking a reefer. <laughs> you know, they get right, you know? It's, um, yeah, and so it's a, it is a job because I realized that that's what's keeping me alive. And although the program is not the same as it was before, I still need that, I need that meal every day. I need that meal every day. And I need to go, and I need to go get it. Mm. I don't need to deliver it to my door. That's not gonna make me a better person. I need to be able to get up and wash my ass off, mm -hmm. put on an outfit, serve the neighborhood, and go get my food, and then serve the neighborhood and come back, you know, and enjoy my life, you know. Those considerations of structure and stability gave way to questions about legacy and how Weston conceptualized his influences in and on the world. That, that, worry, that worry is gone. Now it's just worried about my legacy. And that's why you're here talking to me now. This is, uh, you know, and all that's happening for me too. Uh-huh. It really is. All that's happening for me too. So I just, it just calls for me to keep doing my work and going to those places where I'm showing up at those places, even the places I think I'm supposed to be too, I'm too good for, I'm not. And those people that are there who think I think I'm too good for them, I'm, I don't. But if that's the way, if we have to work our relationship like that. So give me, give me, give it to me. Because you really don't know who I am until you give me an opportunity to, for me to disclose. You don't know that that you don't know that I had that I had awful situations in my life just as you do. You don't know anything about me, and everybody and everybody that's walking down the street is a story like that. Uh -huh. You know, everybody's gone through something awful. You know, everybody's gone through some kind of dysfunction. Nobody's life is perfect. Everybody has pain. Everybody has fear. You know. There's only a couple of emotions. We have a lot of ways to, I mean, there's only a couple of feelings. We have a lot of ways to describe those emotions and, you know, how we choose to serve that feeling back to the world. But, you know, really, it's only love, fear, love, anger, pain, mm. you know. So mm. I, I can deal, I can handle it. I just have to figure out sometimes where I am and how I got here, mm -hmm. particularly that anger thing, because, like, why are you angry? Weston made time to mentor and share space with other artists throughout his work with organizations and beyond. Poet, artist, and activist Pamela Sneed described her first encounter with Weston and the lasting encouragement and camaraderie he offered. Well, you know, I wrote um, uh, a piece for Art Forum, which mm -hmm. was a remembrance of him. I mean, I have a lot of fond stories, but I guess it was like going over to his place for a studio visit and I thought that he was gonna you know bestow this wisdom upon me and uh, because I'm a I'm a newer visual artist and he's like oh child I don't believe in that you know and he was like you know let's just talk we just talked and it was really funny because he had like grapes on a plate and um like cracker barrel you know cheese like cut up into like squares and uh as we talked he pulled you know tarot cards and said something and it was something about like needing more music in my life 
I don't know. I mean, we just talked long into the afternoon and I was really impressed. He was like making uh, these cakes, sculptural cakes. I don't know, made out of clay or some kind of like, some kind of like children's, I don't know how to describe it, but there were these beautiful sculptural cakes and they, they hadn't been finished yet. They hadn't been painted, but there was like tin foil in them. And they were sort of like celebratory. The thing about Fred, no matter what he was going through, you know, he was like making cakes. And he just, you know, he came to everything with like a full heart, like a full self. You heard him speak. I mean, he was laughing, he was crying, he was singing. I mean, he gave you everything. He gave you sort of like the spectrum of like human experience and you know, there was no pretense there. There was just like this full body gusto. I don't know, that, that's like what I hang on to about him. Weston's gusto permeated the entirety of his life, from his striking collages to his enduring connections. He wasn't afraid to muster love in response to the harsh and brittle conditions of the world. In the years before his death in 2020 from bladder cancer, he saw new hope for care to mount society's greatest hurdles. Yeah. You know, and change our attitudes about stuff. Uh-huh. You know, race and sex, that's the big, that's the big cross. <laughs> Everything uh-huh. is race or sex. Is gender included in that when you say that? Yeah, yeah. sex meaning gender. Sex basically meaning gender. You know, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And what about all those people in between? And... What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be white? And what about all those people in between? Because all of those people are in between. That's how we have to identify ourselves. I had this guy in in one of the programs, he always says, I hate labels. (laughs) I hate labels. I'm like, I don't hate them. You know, I think they serve us to some point. I think they can be detrimental. But it's just like if God made everything good and it takes man to take whatever God made and turn it into something awful and ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what it is. But I think we'll get to the point where some of the drugs that now we, you know, criminalizing and sending people away from will be able to use them in the way that they're supposed to be used. You know, because I think some of that, some of those drugs are medicine. I don't know. I just see a, I see a better world. And, that's, and, and I, think, I think some of it's going to happen through globalization. You know, we realize we are connected. I'm connected to that person in wherever. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not just the internet. I'm really, truly connected spiritually, emotionally to those other people in the world. I mean, gosh. <laughs> Poet artist Pamela Sneed described how her social media connection with Weston has changed how she understands his death. He was also like brotherly to me. And I think he had liked something on my Instagram and he would always write nice things about, you know, my visual art. And it was just like even days before he passed, he had written something or was like on my Instagram. And so it was like devastating and pretty shocking to me and not knowing. And I I mean, I think there's this weird thing that's happened, I think, like since the internet has taken over like I refuse to accept people's death in the same way before the internet there was just like a finality for some reason it feels like the technology keeps people alive I don't know if it's their Facebook page I don't know if it's everybody talking about them no one really ever dies in like Facebook land and so in that regard 
I, I don't process it like they're always still here with me. I don't have that sense of finality. Ted Kerr spoke to us about the importance of community and how oral history can alloy communities across time and space, referencing the archive's visual arts and the AIDS epidemic project for which he was an interviewer. So I grew up in a kind of way that I was like, oh, there's no AIDS communities for me to, to join. And as an adult, I've learned that I had peers all across Canada and the United States who were also isolated, thinking that they were the only ones who cared about HIV and they wished that there was community. And so I would say, even if you think you're the only one that cares about something or you're the only one who isn't being represented, that you are not alone. And the, the more you can be vocal about your questions and about your curiosity and about your needs and the louder you can be with those curiosities and your needs, the greater the chances are that you're gonna find people who are exploring representation that you need and want, but are also exploring the archives and the futures that you need and want. And I think what gets taught in school obviously is so narrow, what makes it to mainstream media, whatever that will mean in the future is so narrow. And so we owe it to each other to be always kind of dragging forward the treats and tidbits of history that we find that have made us who we are and sharing them as much as possible. And I have no doubt in my mind that that one or all of these oral histories will bring you life. And so maybe out of respect for the narrators, and if you feel any allegiance towards me out of respect for me, and definitely as a sort of kind of ongoing thank you to the Smithsonian for stewarding such projects, please share the oral history, or at least a quote from the oral history um, with somebody else. And, you know, every year that passes, somebody else from this list of 40 uh, passes away, they die. And, and that is, that it both speaks to the power and the need for oral history, because when somebody dies, the, the library of their life closes to a degree. And so if, let's keep the library open, kids, share the oral histories. Artist and performer Kia LeBeja shared her last encounter with Weston and the solace and joy she finds in revisiting his words. I think the last time I saw him was in New York and I ran into him on the street and I was like, Fred! And he's like, Kia! And we like ran to each other and hug and he's like, oh, I want to have you and your partner over for dinner or lunch. And we like had talked about it and it was right before I was leaving for Europe for a little bit. And I was like, oh, when I get back, like we have to do something. And um, we weren't able to make it happen, but I'm just really happy that I got to see him in that moment and hug him and embrace him and tell him that I loved him. And um, I miss him very much. And, but I feel his spirit, you know, as I feel my mother's spirit, as I feel 
you know, all those who have made that transition, he's, he's with us and he's around and his legacy is, you know, beautiful. And his duets book was just absolutely amazing. I, I loved it and I'm, I treasure it. And I'm so grateful to be able to have it in my possession and read it and just hear his voice. Cause I can just hear his voice. You know, I read his words and I just, I feel him. Weston's vital spirit endures in the lives he touched, the works he created, and the loving optimism he radiated. He concluded his 2016 oral history with an affectionate message for that encounter and every encounter to follow. So yeah, I have a wonderful life, and thank you, Ted. Mm, Thank you. Thank you, Ted, and thank you, Smithsonian. (laughs) I love all you people who are listening to my tape, wherever you are. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Archives of American Art. It was edited by Hannah Hefman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating or sharing it with a friend or family member. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website, aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.